You're listening to the Government Huddle Podcast, brought to you by GMARQU. Each episode features a unique discussion led by Open Text Public Sector Executive and Global Government Thought Leader, Brian Chittister. Experts in all things government from around the world join the show to share their stories and provide insight into the rapidly changing landscape that is the public sector. From digital transformation to workforce issues and even thoughts on policy, nothing is off limits. Come on, let's huddle up. The, the velocity of innovation, the pace of IT, and the, particularly the fact that software is now leading um, when it comes to rapidly innovating and, and delivering capabilities, you know, continuously at a pace of relevance. That that is something that uh, we are vastly, you know, um, underfunding. We don't have the basics of IT um, between basic connectivity, cloud capability, data fabric, you know, DevSecOps uh, adoption. Uh, DevSecOps is to this day not even mandated for new programs, uh, which is, um, you know, borderline criminal. And in the meantime, you see, you know, um, when I compared the, the quote I used to, uh, to create myself on the commercial side, um, you know, something that would cost $50,000 on the commercial side costs half a million in DoD. So we think we spend more money. We feel good about how much we invest as taxpayers in DoD, but we don't, we don't really realize the tremendous amount of waste, uh, you know, 10 cents on the dollar pretty much is going uh, to somewhat of, uh, you know, tangible outcomes. And, and even that because of the adoption of um, waterfall as the only way to do business, you know, these 10 cents are often stuck in time five years behind. So many would argue that even those um, capabilities are dated by the time they get delivered. Welcome back to the Government Huddle Podcast, guys. I'm your host, Brian Chittister. And not everyone can say that they built an educational coding game when they were 12 years old that ended up roughly selling for $54,000 US, or that they started their first company when they were 15, earning them recognition as one of France's youngest entrepreneurs. Even fewer can say that they went on to create 11 additional companies that have the financial means to retire and live comfortably while supporting their family in their mid-30s but the former chief software officer for the United States Air Force, Nicholas Chalant, can. And he's the former chief software officer because back in September of this year, he abruptly resigned, announcing his decision in a drop-the-mic LinkedIn post, expressing frustration with military bureaucrats who had, he said, refused to walk the walk on IT modernization and more agile acquisition. In the post, he called on the Air Force and indeed the entire Department of Defense to stop putting a major lieutenant colonel in charge of identity credentialing and access management, zero trust or cloud computing for one to four million users when they have no previous experience in that field. He went on to state that even skilled practitioners struggle with IT projects at the DOD because of the huge size and complexity of the organization, and that while leaders could delegate technical questions, that can just mean contractors get to make the key decisions, and they don't always put the best interests of the taxpayer or the warfighter first. Prior to joining the DOD, Nick, who is originally from Marseille, France, applied to join the U.S. Department of Homeland Security one month after receiving his U.S. citizenship. This saw him become the chief architect and special advisor for cybersecurity at DHS. He stayed in this role for 18 months, but when the Trump administration came in, that's when he created his 12th company, which he sold within six months and became the CTO at Qualys, the publicly traded cyber organization that acquired his company. And in an intriguing turn of events, 
Nick received a call asking him if he'd like to take on the DevSecOps for the U.S. Department of Defense. Ultimately, he was so successful in building that DevSecOps initiative that he needed to find a home to run it. And that's when they created the Office of the Chief Software Officer, and he was the first one to ever fill that role. And on this episode, I'm fortunate to have Nick on the show to talk about some of his thoughts that drove him to resign from his role, along with ways he feels the private sector can make more of an impact in government today. Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me. You have a really interesting background with startups in the private sector that a lot of people might not know about. You became CSO at the at the U.S. Air Force at such a young age, but you actually started your first company at 15 in France with the money you made selling a game that you coded when you were 12. That's incredible. Tell the listeners a little bit about your journey to getting from a startup CEO at 15 to becoming the first ever chief software officer for the Air Force. Yeah, thank you. And I'm pretty excited you told me I was young still. I felt I feel older, you know. So doing this for 22 years, I was like, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I'm still that young. It's you know, all you wisdom. See, it's all wisdom. You had to see what I looked like when I was 15 showing up in meetings uh, back in France <laughs> when I created my company. People thought I was uh, here just to uh, uh, follow my dad or something. But, um, <clears throat> you know, so I, I started very young coding at seven, you know, 12. I uh, created my first game. I sold it 50K. Uh, at the time, and and then I used the money to create my company. I, you know, a lot of people assume I got money from my my family. I didn't, you know, n- n- zero uh, dollars for my my family. Uh, I started everything from scratch. In fact, my family is clueless in IT, so it's always uh, fun. Um, and so as I coding, um, joined the PHP team. I was uh, fourteen. I'm I'm uh, thirty seven now. So I ended up creating twelve companies. I also had my um, my own investment model where I would create a great innovation space on patents and bring them to exit within uh, six to 12 months. And uh, we ended up doing 187 products. We sold to 45, uh, Fortune 500. And, uh, you know, I started first uh, the, the 12 companies in 12 uh, countries. So Dubai, Latin America, Europe, and US and Canada, and uh, grew it to, uh, to a lot of people and, and sold them. And uh, make enough money so I can um, uh, relax now. And uh, first, you know, I wanted to make a difference. So I started DHS. I was a chief architect at DHS for 18 months with a special advisor for cyber. Uh, and then I started at um, DOD where I first I started as the special advisor for DevSecOps. And then we uh, um, we moved me to the Air Force where I became the first uh, chief software officer in the U.S. government. So uh, that's my journey. That's an incredible background. And so obviously I started this interview off by saying you're the former and, and we'll get to that in a second around your resignation. But I wanted to ask you in your role uh, when you were um, back at Air Force, how did it, it, what were some of the main priorities and what were you really challenged with in that role? Yeah. Well, I think that the key was to make sure we could move at the pace of relevance and uh, <clears throat> be able to really bring enterprise services and capabilities that enable teams that are building, you know, weapon systems and uh, space systems and so on to uh, move fast and fail fast, but don't fail twice for the same reason. So really adopting agile, bringing DevSecOps, which is this ability to continuously uh, deliver software in production in the, in the hands of the warfighter rapidly, continuously. Um, And, uh, you know, I think the, the main concept was to, build these enterprise services almost as if they were companies or startups you know within the government uh serving serving the the warfighter and the teams 
that have to build these uh, weapons and systems so they can um, you know, do their job without having to reinvent the entire stack from cloud and DevSecOps and Zero Trust and all the, the cool stuff we have to do to, uh, uh, to move fast. So that's, that's really where um, I started to focus in, in merging and aggregating and, and, and stopping the waste of, of taxpayer money as much as I, as I could and really creating uh, Cloud One and Platform One. Cloud One is the uh, cloud office for the Air Force and Space Force and um, providing also capabilities to the entire DoD. And then Platform One is the <coughs> DevSecOps team that's bringing um, Agile and DevSecOps, almost like a software factory kind of thing, uh, to all of DoD as the only approved um, software factory a DevSecOps service for all of DoD by DoD CIO. So obviously, if you're starting your first company at the age of 15 and you bring that startup mentality, um, it's something that you obviously brought with you to the Air Force, but everybody knows when you're working in government, it's very difficult to change the culture there. What were some of the challenges that you that you faced when you were trying to bring that type of mentality to a DoD environment, especially? Yeah, I think the number one gap that we have in the department right now is the lack of understanding of agility and agile principles. You know, the, the rest of the commercial sector... Uh, moved to um, Agile 22 years ago. In fact, when I started, I was 15, and that's 22 years ago, and I was already uh, using Agile principles back then. But yet, you see, you know, the the, the government still using Waterfall as the main uh, main way to contract and acquire and build capabilities. You know, with particularly more recently, this fear fear of failing. You know, and uh, people have a, a tough time innovating and and if you compare of course with the spacex where they know they they have to fail to move fast and learn uh, and it's part of the learning in fact they don't see it as failing they see it as uh, uh, learning and, and uh, accelerating and of course it, it, you don't want to fail twice for the same reason um, but you want to be able to move fast and, and learn so um, that's probably the the two biggest impediments and then of course we put a lot of people in charge of programs in the department, like AI and cloud and different things. You know, military people that have certainly good uh, intent intentions, but uh, are vastly or completely uh, unqualified in that uh, role. And then, you know, we wonder why um, they're not capable of building uh, capabilities of quality. I mean, you, you wouldn't see a Google, you know, hire random people on the on the street to run their cloud office, and that's kind of. Uh, uh, what we do uh, based on random selection. Well, and it's something we see all over government, I think, where you have people like yourself with a background um, that's really impressive, and you come in with this technology capability, but you get so frustrated with what ha- what happens within government. Just the fact that you you went back to to do some type of public service is is fantastic in and of itself, but then you just get get frustrated and you end up leaving, go back to the private sector, and we lose talent like that. Having spent time in government, do you have any ideas as to how things like that could change? I mean, you know, I think it's um, it, the, the culture, you know, the, the, the sense of urgency and the, the, the complacency, right? I think the fact that we're still um, call, you know, China near peer adversary, where really it is a peer in many of the domains. And in fact, it's leading in, in many of the most criti- critical domains that um, will be critical to win the next battles, if you look at AI and cybersecurity, offense and defense, for example, that that complacency and that uh, um, you know lack of urgency 
um, can only be unfortunately changed until there's this big, uh, you know, Sputnik moment. But but even when we have them, even recently with the hypersonic Chinese launch and the quantum adoption of quantum compute by China, you know, we hear the chairman of the Joint Staff say, "Oh, that's what's almost a Sputnik moment, right?" So uh, it's not really a Sputnik moment, but I don't agree with that. But uh, you know, I think it's short sighted. Do you think it's, it's a surprise thing? You think it's a pride no, thing? No, I think it's just a lack of accountability uh, thing. Um, it's not ego-driven. It's uh, Some of it is due to incompetence because of lack of understanding of technology and the velocity of technology and AI and what it takes to build these capabilities and how they and the pace of, of building those. Uh, they're so used to the cycles of the former days of innovation where you could take 10 years to build something, where now, you know, the velocity is, is very accelerated. Um, so that that's, you know, lack of awareness of, of that, but also, um, you know, <clears throat> complacency when it comes to um, letting China slowly catch up on every every side of the, the puzzle. Uh, but yeah, you know, dismissing it, uh, which is scary as well. And, and so, you know, I, I really think that the fact that we overclassify and... You know, we we don't share publicly a lot of information. So effectively, the, the taxpayers don't really know, you know, how much um, taxpayer money we waste down the drain every year. I, I argue uh, we pretty much get 10 cents on the dollar on, on return on investment at best, in the best use cases. So we, we, we feel good about spending $750 billion in defense, but we, we probably get $60 billion of actual value. Uh, meanwhile, China, of course, um, is way more effective at spending their their money, um, and, and you know that lack of accountability of, of demanding results and transparency has been a pattern of, of, of you know thirty forty years, and that's what you get when people you know get promotions by actually not doing much. Knowing you have kind of a, a global lens to this, I'm curious to get your opinion. I was I was having this conversation with. Uh, Alec Ross uh, on the show. He's the author of uh, two New York Times bestselling books, the, the Industries of the Future and the Raging 2020s, which he just released. And we talked a little bit about this. And one of the things he said is China specifically kind of blurs the lines between private and public sector. There really isn't as big of a difference, which allows innovation to happen in both areas just as quickly. Um, when you when you look at that, as well as the rest of the world and kind of how fast they're moving, especially in the Middle East, I've seen so much growth in the Middle East. What are your thoughts on on kind of ways those those countries have caught up and what what the U.S. could do to to continue, I guess, trying to stay in the lead? But I, I guess what you said is we've lost. No, we, we have not lost. We, we, we will be losing if we don't take immediate action. And I think we will be losing by December 2022 if we don't take really tangible, significant actions. And so I'm working on a piece now to uh, list exactly the step-by-steps that we need to take to um, catch up with China in six months. If we don't, though, the compounding effect of of the, that velocity of AI and, and uh, the, the fact that China has access to so many people and so much data, of course, it's going to make it impossible to catch up, uh, physically impossible to catch up. And so, um, you know, you're right when it comes to the, the fact that there is no wall between the uh, Chinese companies and the Chinese Communist Party. <clears throat> it's a great advantage to them, but we, we also have this great values, American values here. We don't want to lose that. At the same time, we are competing against China 
the, the issue is um, people don't realize how bad it is and the fact that it, we are already at war. We just, most people don't know it. Uh, because we overclassify most of the information, we can't really share enough for people to pay attention. And um, I would argue if, if they knew, most Americans would want to proactively uh, contribute and join the fight and, and help us uh, by providing access to some of their technologies, which we don't have access to, and that's why we're so behind. And you know, people that dismiss, you know, the fact that I say we're losing, are people that don't understand enough about DoD and the fact that effectively um, we do not have access to the U.S. companies' AI. And so, sure, if if you compare the U.S. companies to the Chinese AI, I think we're doing pretty good. But if you compare, you know, the government access, the U.S. government access to AI to the Chinese Communist Party, uh, that's a different story. And so um, I think that's the biggest uh, impediment. So being able to be more open and get people excited about relying and be one team, one fight and stop this uh, political nonsense and instead uh, rally. And that's really what happened. Unfortunately, when there's a significant event, we've seen it, of course, for 9-11 um, and of course, World War Two and so on. But um, hopefully, that's not going to take that big of an event for us to wake up because that might be too late at that point. That's also the difference, you know. Uh, back in the day, you could potentially catch up with some of these nations that are not, you know, massively. They were not massively ahead in terms of technology. They did not have an insane amount of of people compared to what we have. Uh, if you compare with China, though, that's a different story. So we don't have that luxury of time and. And, and and we shouldn't we shouldn't be complacent about the fact that China is completely controlling our supply chain at scale across most industries and uh, pretty much can get away with you know uh, stealing IP um, you know making it so we can compete by by really um, uh, not only uh, you know taking all the the information we have but also um, you know controlling that supply chain uh, th- that's that's a very scary uh, thing when you you know for example that uh, you know Taiwan is uh, the second uh, location where most of the chips are built um, I would argue if I'm China and I want to attack Taiwan um, you know the first thing I would do is take down the US grid or a piece of the US grid so the we'll be so busy uh, fixing the grid that we can't even uh, take the time to go and help Taiwan so so you, you said that as, um, I guess I, the way I would t- take what you mentioned is, is kind of as companies, right? If, if we knew how bad it was potentially that we would want to jump in and join the fight. And, and you also mentioned World War II, and that's where my brain went initially. The same way that everybody, including um, the private sector, kind of came together to defeat uh, the enemies that we all kind of had collectively. Um, it, but it, it kind of begs the question, what can the private sector do to support government in in this fight, I mean, we talk about the show all the time about uh, vendors becoming true partners with government, but this this almost takes it a step further than that. How do you see companies like Google and and others that have this these more advanced AI capabilities and technological capabilities being able to jump in and join the fight within the DoD? Well, you know, I think the. The most important um, is, you know, really getting access to best of breed uh, capabilities, right? Because um, uh, many companies refuse to do business with the department. You know, I I spoke to many conferences on the uh, commercial side in Silicon Valley when I was in in the job as a chief software officer. And, 
you would have people waiting, you know, to shake hands, uh, my hand at the end of the conference and then, you know, come to me and be like, well, you know, I don't want to shake your hand because your hand, uh, you know, is covered in blood and, and uh, because you're killing babies with jets and all that nonsense. And, 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 and the, you know, those people fail to realize sometimes that um, the freedom they, they enjoy uh, you know, is 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 due to the the sacrifices of the the wall fighter. So it's it's very short sighted. You know, we we certainly have a DoD bubble, but we also have a Silicon Valley bubble. You know, uh, ideally we're gonna pop pop both of them and and make people realize that we live in a real world where not everyone is nice and it's not a kumbaya universe, and uh, that we need to have the deterrence aspect and and that helping uh, also, you know, when it comes to like Google walking away from the Project Maven, which was, you know, the drones um, using AI to improve the vision uh, detection of the imagery of, of satellites and stuff. Uh, and, and so being able to, to do that potentially could have prevented the, the debacle we've seen in Afghanistan with the killing of the seven kids, you know, by accident, because AI could have potentially... Uh, uh, provided better insight and information, right? Uh, so we don't make mistakes like this. So, so people see it as, hey, I don't want to help killing people, but but they're missing that. Hey, one, it's a deterrent, so we don't have millions of deaths. But two, it's also potentially preventing uh, mistakes and 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 issues where where people die that that shouldn't have uh, been targeted at all. So, so that's that's important for people to maybe um, wake up as well. You talked about the usage of data, especially on, on the, the China side, but I'm curious to know, I think we've seen a lot of the, the way data usage within government has evolved, um, especially over the past, I would, I would argue, 18 months, um, just mm -hmm. based on a draconian necessity. How have you seen the evolution of how the DOD specifically kind of ingests, processes, and exploits data? How has that really changed the landscape in the space? Well, you know that that's really where the 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 department has as a lack of access to to the basics of IT life, as I call them. You know, be, between cloud and data lake, data fabric, AI ML capabilities, all the stuff we take for granted on the commercial side are just not readily accessible at scale as an enterprise. So, so you know, one of the recommendations I'm making in my uh, my publication is about creating a joint office, right, to merge the talent, merge all the the enterprise or, or all the non-enterprise capabilities into a single office um, where, you know, cloud and DevSecOps and Zero Trust and Data Fabric and AIML can actually be seen as enablers, right? So uh, teams don't have to reinvent the wheel. And, and you know, you, you have a lot of data in the department, but it's siloed and inaccessible um, and, and so segmented that you cannot have a big picture of what's going on and, and, and really... Uh, you know, uh, until we solve that, um, it's going to be very difficult to do anything meaningful in AI whatsoever, right? One of the quotes that you had, um, I, I'm really interested in, it says the DOD is pretending they want industry folks to come in and help, um, but they don't let them do the work. And, and while we wasted time in bureaucracy, our adversaries have moved forward. It, do you see it? I mean, I, obviously, at some point, the bureaucracy is an impediment to uh, innovation, but is this something that is really just over the top and needs to get streamlined? Is, is that kind of what you're saying here? Yeah, I think, you know, and, and you know, it's always interesting how people use terms like culture and bureaucracy and, right, and, and, and we forget, it, you know, the, the fact is people are sometimes a problem, right? And, and, and it's just what it is, right? And we refuse to call 
uh, them out and um, hold, hold people accountable. But but it's just too easy because you know culture sounds like this mythical mythical thing that no one can ever fix. You know, oh, it's not my fault. It's culture. It's bureaucracy. Well, no, you know, you decide, and, and there's way more freedom than we we think. Um, there's tremendous amount of silos and egos getting in the way of decisions. Uh, to 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 just do some of the recommendations I'm proposing uh, in my publication, you know, would take dozens of people to agree that we need to do it, but could potentially be pushed from the top if there were if there was the right you know urgency, sense of urgency, um, and, and so I guess maybe sometimes it's just a matter of uh, awareness and and awakening. You know, people, you know, the complacency is just driving me completely crazy because. I think people don't realize that, uh, um, you know, the, the companies like Tesla are completely fine open sourcing their patents uh, because they know they're moving so fast. They don't even uh, fear competition. They, they are always going to be ahead. And, 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 you know, the department is doing the strict opposite. At some point, we're trying to be so secure and so um, careful with, you know, the people and the clearances and the entire thing that, we're going to be so far behind that no one is going to even try to hack us because we're going to be irrelevant. I don't know what's worse is you know getting hacked because you have great great technology or, or have no technology and not getting hacked because no one wants to hack you. So Nick, Nick, can I ask you this though? I mean, on the Tesla side, um, one would argue that if they get hacked, it, they're really losing money. But if the DoD gets hacked, they could it could be a loss of life, right? So That's it's a little true, bit right? because Tesla cars can kill people right um so so that's that's pretty short-sighted but it's, you could make the same argument of spacex right the mm -hmm. only reason why they didn't open source more information about spacex is because the government is preventing spacex to do so uh because of ITAR law right uh so tesla is a a car is it could be a weapon you know if if, if you if you uh, hack the over-the-air update of a car. You could take control of cars. You could make them crash into people and things. Um, you know, it, it's just that's always a good excuse, right? And that's why I didn't use an example like Facebook call, right? But but sure, but Tesla, sure. Tesla is you know close enough, and SpaceX is obviously exactly the same. Uh, SpaceX is is moving fast and has no problem innovating, right? I mean. Without SpaceX, we'll be using Russian rockets to send American astronauts to ISS, and people are not even, uh, you know, appalled by by this nonsense. Well, um, SpaceX, SpaceX is a really great example because they they partner so closely with the government, what they're doing, kind of almost taking the baton. People could argue, yeah, but the, from, the government is putting them down, right? <laughs> the yeah, exactly, is which down. is kind of funny. So, the impediment of SpaceX is uh, is the U.S. government, right? Uh, a good example is uh, you we know could have human and uh, uh, we could have humans in Mars in like just a few years if SpaceX was actually driving it. Oh yeah, and, and look, you know, uh, SpaceX can update the software a day before the launch, but for 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 months until I started to push back, the the, the Air Force and Space Force re refused to let you know SpaceX update their software. Um, you know, f closer to 60 days before launch. So we had actually launches where we had more issues and more bugs because of that software freeze. And, and the, the we had to show like data that, that was showing that the, the commercial launches of SpaceX were actually uh, safer because they were able to update software up to a day before the launch. And, and, and we were the impediment to, to SpaceX success, right? In those launch, in the in those government launches, so the, so that's something. 
you know, that, that should be, um, uh, you know, sometimes we, we try to be safe, right? And we forget about the, the downside we didn't think about. Just like creating government clouds, you know, um, if you look at Amazon Gov Cloud or Azure government cloud regions, they're, they're, they're two years behind the commercial regions. They have a very limited number of physical locations, so very easy to bomb and get rid of. Right, so 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 we were trying to be secure, having our own cloud, and you know, uh, control the data and who has access to it. But but maybe we ended up creating more risk, right? So it, it's always thought with good intention, but bureaucracy turns it into a nightmare. So you touched on something there. I'm curious to understand. So obviously, the DoD had this massive Jedi procurement going on, and um, and and to be more specific, around cloud and. But to me, cloud is one of the biggest enablers that that government's going to see over the next decade to be able to scale out what they're looking to do. In what ways do you see kind of procurement like this Jedi um, situation really get in the way of of possible innovation? I feel like it's just an obvious yes, but I'm really curious to get your take on ways you think that could be mitigated. Well, you know, I think Jedi is a good example of, of what happens when you have people that don't listen, right? And, uh, you know, they brought, you know, alleged innovation leaders from the Defense Digital Service that refused to listen to us saying, hey, we, we need multi-cloud, you know, multi multiple cloud options. We don't want to get locked into a single cloud service provider. We need diversity of options. Uh, you know, Jedi for three years was um, just a pile of lawsuits with no no tangible outcomes to the warfighter. Meanwhile, I, you know, we created Cloud One in the Air Force and Space Force that has five cloud providers, uh, massive implementations across DoD, and uh, we did it, you know, in six months. Uh, but we did we did it the right way with the right outcome and the right mindset. Um, so, so it is possible, right? You know, people people keep saying, "Oh, but you know, this wasn't possible anyways." You know, they shouldn't even have tried, and, and that's wrong because we we proved them wrong. At the same time that this was happening, you know, within six months we had a we had a cloud office with uh, five clouds on contracts, and and now it's a uh, it's a massive capability. So you talked about what you did with Cloud One and kind of creating that success. Uh, some other kind of pockets of success that I've seen within government are these software factories, like you you mentioned earlier in in the Air Force specifically Kessel Run. There's also Army Software Factory. What do you see the future impact of these programs looking like in support of DOD? Yeah, and, and you know we, we have to be careful here because you know, I don't think we need that many, and I think we need to merge, and I think we need to stop redundant work. You know, the, the army is a good example of something that's completely short-sighted. You know, they they refuse to partner with Platform One and and, and merge, and and uh, you know the army CEO decided to walk away from Cloud One and create his own cloud office from scratch for no valid reason, no valid outcome other than egos and and incompetence, you know, so I think, I think we have to be careful, right? It's, it's not just about uh, saying we're checking the boxes, right? Uh, we have a limited set of, of talent. We need to be able to, um, you know, do right by, to, for the wall fighters. Uh, we, we have a lot of money, but it's mostly spent wrong in silos and vacuums. So, so one of the recommendations I'm making is actually to merge all the cloud offices, but then, you know, picking, who is leading in this case cloud one in, in the department and make that become the new DODY cloud office. But the, the construct and the way that that has to be done, you know, we have to move from single primes. We have to, to have a, 
multiple companies on contract. We have to have the government as the integration office. DISA is incapable of understanding that. Unfortunately, uh, they keep doing single prime awards. That's not the way we should be buying uh, like the last you know bid on Zero Trust when, again, the Air Force created the, the largest implementation of Zero Trust in the department, yet they refuse to use it as a, as a first step and then scale it. Instead, they go try to, you know, bid a, a single prime to, to come up with a magical zero trust uh, a solution that doesn't exist. It, it, you know, it's always interesting how we staff those those of those teams by people that actually told me to my face a year before that, that they didn't believe in zero trust. Now they're in charge of, of zero trust for the department when I was pushing zero trust five years ago at DHS, you know, so... It, at the end of the day, we need to staff people with people with experience doing the doing that. At least for a small organization, um, you know, if you're going to do something for the largest organization on the in the world, you probably want to get someone that's done it before. At least for twenty people, I'm pretty sure that will be a good first step. And then, of course, um, you know, making making sure we don't start from scratch and reuse the, the best of breed that are already in the department. Cloud One, Platform One, all this, right? So we don't need you know Kesteren to be spending sixty million a year. On platform work, where uh, platform one—that's uh, platform one's budget for all of DoD, right? Uh, we have to merge, we have to consolidate, and we have to deliver more value by by combining the work and and delivering more value. If we if we've removed China out of the equation, I'm I'm curious to get your global lens here again. Where does U.S. rank in terms of innovation? Uh, obviously, public sector specific. Um. Yeah, probably uh, number one. But I mean, there are so many challenges here. So, so where let, let's say if we continue yeah, but, on know, the tra- trajectory we're in right now, where do you see us being in five years? Maybe that's the better question. Yeah, but the other nations are not doing much better, right? So, um, you know, NATO is a disaster. Um, you know, I, I, I've yet to see. I think the one that really. I was impressed, you know, Germany is actually doing pretty good stuff. Um, You know, I think the UK really is smart because they're letting us make all the mistakes and learn from that and and then implement all the changes and listening and actually listening. You know, the the issue is, you know, we don't listen, right? Uh, We have bloated teams delivering uh, subpar value and and then we keep using them as references, you know. Um, You know, we need need more, we need uh, more, tangible metrics to track progress. Um, so the good news is, you know, mo- most of the nations are not doing that well. And because we're spending so much money and throwing to see what sticks on the wall, there's enough that sticks that we ended up, we end up doing better. We could produce, don't get me wrong, we could produce 10x more value if we were more agile and, and had better innovation uh, leaders. But because we spend more money, we end up being okay. Uh, but of course, that's removing China from the equation. With China, uh, it doesn't really matter because once China takes over, um, none of that is going to help us because NATO is not going to even make a, a dent in in that fight against China. When so, is the spirit of kind of the the paper you're pulling together kind of a pathway to kind of what success could look like, or or what being a, a true number one innovative company or country looks like um, over the over the next period of time? Yeah, I mean, I, I wish we could, you know, convince Elon Musk to come and spend a, two years in the government. But I think both his head and most of the U.S. government leaders' heads would explode 
in that uh, six first months. So I'm not sure that would uh, end up uh, <laughs> succeeding. But you know, we need people like him, and, and you know, honestly, people like me, right? Uh, that can try to do that. And um, you know, I think that the, the difficult thing is I was dropped in the job with no background of DoD, and that that's tough, right? Um, oh yeah. You know, uh, it took me like a year and a half to start really understanding how bad things were. Um, now, you know, no going, you know, going back potentially would really, you know, help me move much faster if I was empowered, you know, in the right role. But uh, um, getting someone from the commercial, you know, we keep saying we need people to come from the commercial side. That's tricky, right? Because if they have zero understanding of DoD and the mission, it is a big, big uh, learning curve, you know, so. Well, so before I give you an opportunity to, to leave some final thoughts to the listeners, I'm curious to know, what are some of your predictions then for the future of DOD? Well, it is two avenues, right? One avenue where we keep being complacent and we start saying, uh, finally, the Pentagon leaders having no choice but to admit that we're losing instead of saying, well, we are, you know, they're catching up or they're getting close, so, right? They're going to have to admit that um, China is leading. Uh, or, you know, we have um, uh, an awakening uh, moment, and I'm hoping I'm doing that slowly but surely, and uh, people are held accountable. I mean, the, the fact, you know, it's not great that we've seen, again, the debacle in Afghanistan and people getting away with it. That, that, that's, not, that's not giving me a lot of hope. Uh, well, when I'm guessing that's giving that. private sector companies even more ammunition in, in the fight against working with the DOD. Yeah, yeah, and, and and worse, I think it, it also is going to be, be very difficult to attract, you know, um, younger uh, generations to come and want to serve, you know. So, uh, um, you know, it, it's scary, and, and the fact that there was no accountability and people get away with this um, is honestly despicable. And uh, uh, I was hoping that would be a, an awakening moment, but uh, I, I don't think it's going to be, unfortunately. Well, so, so Nick, before you go, we'd love to give you an opportunity to leave some final thoughts for our listeners. Well, you know, I think we need to, to take action now. We need to um, really, if we, this is an existential threat to the nation, to our kids' future, I, I do believe without a single doubt that within 15 to 20 years, we would have lost against China. And, and, and China is not going to just sit there. You know, China has no interest now to disrupt uh, our economy and a way of life now that's going to change soon enough. And that's where we're going to start feeling the difference. So the complacency we have now, we should really um, rethink that. And, and really, uh, if anyone has um, uh, the urge to come and serve and, and potentially have, if they have companies with, with products and innovation, um, they should really reach out to us. We, we are helping uh, at no cost, you know, co- companies to um, get on government contracts and um, get better uh, understanding of what it takes to uh, get uh, their software, you know, authorized for use in, 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 in the U.S. government and all this, this stuff, all the impediments getting in their way. We're trying to streamline um, that, that support and, and helping them do that. So, um, you know, we really think it's, 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 it's now and ever. So, um, uh, I'm, I'm thankful that you're helping us uh, uh, spread that message. Nick, when you say reach out to us, um, tell our listeners where they can reach out to to, to make contact and, and support. 
Yeah, the easiest way is to reach out to me on LinkedIn, you know, um, and so my, my LinkedIn profile is really, uh, I, I do these uh, bi-weekly live LinkedIn events too, so uh, uh, call it in the nick of time, Nick, and I see like my, my first name in the nick of time, and, and so it's on LinkedIn, and anyone can add me on LinkedIn, and, and that's for how we communicate, and, and we, we can really um, streamline that, that, that whole nightmare of a process to get, uh, you know, companies uh, understand better what it takes to to work in the in the government. You know, fantastic, Nick. Thanks again for the time today. Really appreciate it. No, thanks for having me. This has been the Government Huddle Podcast. You can check out more episodes of the show by heading over to gmarku.com or wherever you access your podcasts. And please feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn or on Twitter at Chittastray B. Thanks for listening, guys. Bye for now. <laughs>